Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Let's get into it, baby. Welcome. Welcome to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Oh, it's going to be a good podcast. It's going to be a good episode this week. Of course, it's Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast because I am Sam Roberts. I will explain it to you. I am a wrestling fan. I do this podcast because I'm a wrestling fan and for other wrestling fans. You know, I still like wrestling. I still this is how much and I'll talk about this in state of wrestling this week. I literally spent an afternoon this week uh reading old copies of the Wrestling Observer, and I don't mean like from the last couple of weeks, I mean from 1991 and 1992. That's what I was doing for a couple of hours. But it gave me a very good perspective on what's going on right now. So we'll get to that. Uh, if you get a chance, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, leave a rating, give a review, the whole deal. It helps out more than you could possibly know. Uh, a lot to talk about this week. Katie Linendahl will be joining me in State of Wrestling. Um, this is... Uh, the first state of wrestling we've done since Roman's suspension has been announced uh, and a lot going on in the general world of wrestling. So we'll talk about all that. My guest, my guest this week is Josh Gross. Josh, you're going to like this interview. Josh Gross wrote a book uh, that he sent to me called Anoki, Ali versus Anoki. Ali versus Anoki is about the first, the biggest not the first, but the biggest uh, boxer versus wrestler match that ever existed. I believe it happened around 1976. It was Antonio Inoki one-on-one with Muhammad Ali in Tokyo. But this fight was so big that it was carried by a lot of uh, the American pro wrestling promoters via closed circuit. You'd go to an arena, you'd see some matches that they put on, and then you'd watch this thing live from Tokyo on closed circuit television. Uh, It was really, really hyped uh, and ended up being a huge disaster. A lot of people see it as the predecessor for MMA. It was the first, and well, you you could take it two ways. For a lot of people, it's the predecessor to MMA, and it's also the predecessor to sports entertainment. This was at a time when Vince McMahon Sr. was still running the WWF, uh, and wrestling was not yet sports entertainment. This was when you go, wait a minute, we can incorporate mainstream celebrity into this thing and really get some notoriety. It was the first taste of that, uh, and it wouldn't be the last, that's for sure. But the fight ended up being a disaster because of what it looked like. It's a classic. You can look at it on YouTube um, for yourself. But basically, they couldn't figure out the rules, and both guys went in there, and it became a shoot, and Antonio Inoki just went to his back, got into the crab position, and just started kicking Ali in the legs for 15 rounds. And Ali didn't know what to do, so he couldn't land any punches. The whole thing, it looked really bad. Uh, It affected Ali's career poorly. Uh, It was rough. 
it was rough for a long time, but historically, it's a very, very important fight. Uh, and Josh Gross did a pretty amazing job chronicling the whole thing and the world that was going on around this fight uh, in his book. Uh, uh, and and as far as as these athletes go, I mean, Antonio Inoki is as big a legend in Japan as you can possibly get, and Ali is Ali. It doesn't get any bigger. So uh, no more waiting around. Let's get right to it. The interview this week with uh, Josh Gross. And now, the Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast interview. Today, uh, we got a special guest. I'm welcoming Josh Gross onto the show. Josh was one of the first uh, MMA journalists. He's been a MMA. He's been following MMA and, and reporting on it since 2000, which is way before... MMA had the popularity that it does today, and uh, the reason that I have him on the show is because he's come out with this book behind one of, to me, the most interesting, as a wrestling fan, one of the most interesting wrestling matches of all time, but I guess you'd say one of the most interesting interesting fights of all time. I've watched it on YouTube, I mean, more times than I can count. Uh, it's called Ali versus Anoki. Josh, what's going on, man? Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be on. Of course. Now, first of all, obviously, this was not timed around the death of Ali. This was something that that, that you can't you can't just pump a book out. Like it's not like the guy died and you're like, all right, time to put a book out. No, uh, that would be pretty uh, terrible, actually. No, I, the book uh, has been something that's been in the works. I signed the book deal uh, May of 2015, and the release date was June 21st, and we had agreed on that uh, six months ago. So. Uh, obviously, the timing, um, you know, I've had a lot of questions about it and what my thoughts were. And I had to kind of wrap my mind around, you know, having a book with Ali's name on it and trying to sell something with his name on it. But, um, you know, it is a really unique moment in time and I think sheds light on a part of Ali's life that people may not know much about. And certainly the confluence of pro wrestling and the combat sports worlds. So I think, uh, you know, if you weren't sure that those things were intertwined, there's no doubt that they are, and uh, the book really delves into all that. Yeah, and uh, it's also, I feel like this is one of these fights that, if it had gone well, would have gone down in history. Like, when you watch the Ali sort of in-remembrance videos or whatever, or they're going through all of his classic moments, whether they be boxing matches or showbiz moments or whatever, nobody talks about this fight, probably because it went so poorly. If it had gone well, I feel like it would get the credit that you give it in the book as being the the predecessor of MMA. Yeah, I call it uh, the forgotten fight that inspired mixed martial arts and launched sports entertainment. And I think you're 100% right. Had it been like a, a great contest, had the rules not gotten in the way and really prevented Inoki from competing on a, a level playing field, um, had Ali um, you know, been uh, maybe showed a little bit more guts in the fight, and I don't want to even frame it that way because he showed tremendous guts just by stepping in there with someone like Antonio Inoki. Um, you know, I, I think it would have been rem- remembered much differently than it was. Most people consider it, in Ali's career, at least a, a farce and a dud, yeah. something to be forgotten, sort of a footnote. But I think 40 years later, Sam, in a world where you know mixed martial arts is popularized and people really understand and are used to watching fights with grappling, uh, it takes on a whole new context. I also think that kicking has become a different thing now. Like, people understand kicking in a way that mainstream didn't back then. But but the first hurdle that you have to get past when talking about this fight to anybody is the fact that it was a shoot. Like, you've had other boxer versus pro wrestler fights before, but pro wrestling 
is, I mean, and, and this is the 70s, so it was just becoming, but now we all know pro wrestling to be sports entertainment. When you see Floyd Mayweather versus The Big Show, for instance, at WrestleMania, at no point do you think, oh, this is like UFC, this is like two, you think, oh, this is a show, this is wrestling, this is WrestleMania, you have Floyd Mayweather, who's a legit boxer, stepping into a ring, but obviously you're talking about a predetermined fight that's being put on for entertainment. Are people going to get hurt? Is our hits going to be real? Possibly, but at the end of the day, everybody's in agreement on what's happening. This thing is different because it was a shoot, correct? It was a shoot. Initially, it was intended to be a work. Um, uh, Vince McMahon, the father, uh, sat in a room and, and mapped out you know what it may look like. And uh, Bob Arum, who was Ali's promoter, was into it. The only guy who wasn't really into it was Ali at the end of the day, although he always hoped in some sense that it would turn into an exhibition, turn into a work. It became pretty clear that Inoki's intentions and Inoki's people uh, had different plans, and Ali had agreed to do this and participate, and Ali turned out to be the kind of human being that when he said he was going to do something, he did it. Now, I mean, the money was huge. He was guaranteed, or well, he was guaranteed $3 million, but he had potential to make $6.1 million. And this, this is, is, by 19- the way, not today money. This is... This is, this is 1976 money. Yes. This is, like, this is enormous money. Uh, far and away the biggest purse for a combat sports scenario. But you know this, Sam. I mean, the, the history of boxer versus grappler and, and, and boxer versus pro wrestler is long. I mean, in the 1920s, Jack Dempsey... And Ed Strangler Lewis, and Ed Strangler Lewis was the number one pro wrestler of his day. You know, they, they there was a lot of ink spilled in newspapers, and there was a lot of discussion. There was, you know, hashing out rules and discussion over money and location, and they almost they almost fought. And America would have been captivated by this because, you know, gra- grappling and catch wrestling at the turn of the century was maybe the most popular sport in America in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and all that, you know, I I was always a guy who said, well, the connections between pro wrestling and MMA are thin, and I didn't really, maybe didn't want to acknowledge them. I'm more on the sporting side. I want to know who the best fighter in the world is. But, boy, going through the history, I mean, there's no question that the importance and the legacy that pro wrestling had in what grappling combat sports ended up being uh, is you can't untie them. I mean, especially on the Japanese side where they're basically the same thing. Um, it, it, it was it was a lot to go through, and yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I think you're talking about you know boxer versus pro wrestler. There is this history and these connections, and they're numerous, and yeah. I think they all tie together in this one night. And I mean, and you saw it's not just this one fight, right? Like you see as you're going through because this fight happened in Tokyo, but it was presented before pay per view, so it's presented the way WrestleMania 1 was. It's presented closed-captioned across, really, the world, because in in lots of different spots in the United States it was happening, but people were were renting out arenas and and stadiums and putting on... Promoters in America were putting on their own shows. Like, there there was an Andre the Giant boxer versus wrestler match at Shea Stadium that was like the the opener. You'd go, you'd watch this boxer versus wrestler match, and then on the big screen... You'd watch the the closed circuit of Inoki versus Ali live from Tokyo, right? Totally, and then the closed circuits around the U.S. were U.S. were mainly put on by the pro wrestling folks, uh, the the WWWF, you know, Vince McMahon. They, everything then was the territory structure, and you had different promoters. You know, you pretty much fans in those territories were 
kind of in the dark about what was happening everywhere else, and this was a chance for the pro wrestling business to come together. Right. Uh, Vince McMahon had to do a lot of convincing of other promoters and other regions to, to want to do that. Um, the Shea Stadium card was amazing. Over 32,000 people came out, and the Wepner-Andre the Giant contest was a work. Uh, Wepner confirmed that. I think most people accept that. Yeah. Uh, he swore that the brawl afterwards was real. I guess uh, he got thrown out of the ring by Andre the Giant, and uh, Gorilla Monsoon stepped on his chest, and Wepner thought it was part of the show, and the guest gorilla just wouldn't let him get up, and so his corner came over and started throwing blows, and he told me some one of his guys punched under the giant in the shoulder and broke his hand. So it was like it was like a whole bunch of craziness. But that was also, these, by the way, in an era where wrestling, I believe that because that was when wrestling was being protected. Like you know, even going as far forward as the as the boxer WrestleMania two. So you're talking about 1987 between Mr. T and Roddy Piper. You know, Roddy Piper's in there not allowing Mr. T to have an easy time of anything because he's still in this mentality of protecting pro wrestling, protecting the business. So I would imagine 10 years prior, yeah, the Gorilla Monsoon probably was stepping on his chest to remind this boxer, you better take pro wrestling seriously. Yeah, and uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Muhammad Ali famously stepped in the ring together, actually in advance of this fight with Inoki in Japan on Wide World of Sports, they, they tangled. Um, they met in Philadelphia. Gene Kilroy, who's one of Ali's uh, long advisors and friends, uh, told me about the rehearsal beforehand, and they saw Monsoon pick him up and kind of drop Ali on his hip, and they were like, oh, my God, that hurts, and Ali was kind of rubbing his side. So, yeah, Ali knew. Ali had a, a, a real understanding of wrestling. He was enamored with wrestling. I mean, there's one thing I do in the book um, is I take a look at two Ali's. Uh, the pre-Sunny Liston champion Ali, where he's the kid after the Rome Olympics. And I look at the demise of his career from the thrill in Manila on, which was October 75, leading to the Sanoki contest and kind of his demise physically. But one of the things that I do in the early part of his career is I trace his 1962, and he had three fights in Los Angeles and spent a lot of time around pro wrestlers. He was he became very close with classy Freddie Blassie, who's an icon, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Blassie traveled with Ali to uh, Japan for the 1976 Inoki contest. He was basically represented as his manager, and he was the emissary for the WWF side and kind of like was the eyes and ears for Vince McMahon, uh, the father. And it was, uh, you know, again, these worlds coming together. I don't think there's any doubt that pro wrestling had an enormous impact on the way that Ali sold himself. Oh, for sure. I mean, Ali was cutting promos before half the wrestlers were cutting promos. Exactly. And the wrestlers started picking up on what he was doing, but he took it from pro wrestling. So, I mean, if you look at him, he's actually doing kind of Freddie Blassie. A lot of people uh, credit his love of pro wrestling to Gorgeous George, and they did meet. uh, Ollie's first fight in Las Vegas was in 1960, and the following night, Blassie wrestled George at the same venue, and Ollie was around both of them. But I do think it was Freddie Blassie who had more of the impact. Uh, And, uh, you know, he was around a lot of characters. Gene LaBelle, who was the referee for the contest, um, was in that L.A. era, and he is a famous uh, pro wrestling man and a martial artist. In fact, I think he's the first true mixed martial artist in the modern era. So, uh, you know, all these connective tissues, it was, it was really wild to go through and, and see how these things fit together. But at the end of the day, it, would, it just came together in a, in a really nice way. And um, I, I think there's no question to me that what we see as modern mixed martial arts today is a hybrid of the pro wrestling business model with sport. And uh, there's no doubt that this match in 76 had a lot to do with that. So where does the match fall apart? Because you've got Ali, who's got an understanding of pro wrestling. You've got Inoki, who is you know one of the most legendary to this day 
pro wrestlers in Japanese history. Is it a scenario where Ali doesn't want to look silly so he won't work a fixed fight? Is it a scenario where Ali knows that Inoki is going to take liberties with him in the ring because Inoki, because in Japan, especially then, wrestling was taken even more seriously. So these Japanese guys did not take what they were doing as a show. They did take what they were doing as sport, regardless of it, if it was fixed or not. Uh, where was it that the thing crumbled? I think in, in all the places you outlined, it, it crumbled in a lot of ways. One, yeah, uh, Ali was not willing to take a fall. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, you know, unless you were another human being who could make him do that, he wasn't going to do that for you. So I think that's kind of where the first hang-up was. That's how it was proposed to him initially. And then um, there was a lot of concern. You know, there were still negotiations along the way of what it would be and how it would look. And Ali had to defend himself in the press constantly. He was swore up and down that this was a legitimate shoot. Right. Uh, he was on the he was on the Tonight Show ten days before, well twelve days before the fight. You know, he really making a defense of what he was doing as as a legitimate contest. But even then, he didn't really know the rules. No one knew the rules. Which is uh, which is neg- by the way mind blowing because you always and I think some of that still happens today. But you want to think that when some when a fight of this caliber is brought to the table and money is invested and all this stuff is happening, you want to think that every detail has been painstakingly worked out before anybody puts their name on paper, when in reality, half the time, they're just trying to get these two guys to commit, and then once you've committed, we'll figure it out, but we just want you to commit. Yeah, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. They announced the rule set. Uh, there was a press conference in March of 76 at the Plaza Hotel in New York. Andre the Giant was there. I mean, there was a, sort of everybody coming together to announce this thing officially in the U.S. Um, the Japanese side had, had known about it and talked about it prior. But in the U.S., this was the first major chance to do that. And they announced the rule set. It was out in the, in the media. It looked actually a lot like the rules that were kicked around in the 1920s for uh, Jack Dempsey and Ed Strangler-Lewis. Um, but the rules at the end of the day were kind of a mess because, you know, again, it was this, this, it wasn't a mixed martial arts contest where we know there's a standard set of rules and expectations of what the athletes should know in terms of their skills and everything else. This was a boxer fighting a pro wrestler. Now, in Oki's case, obviously, he imagined pro wrestling as a true martial art, a system under which, you know, if it's a real fight scenario, he could use his pro wrestling tactics to win. That's how he sold himself. That's how he sold New Japan Pro Wrestling, strong style and all that. But he was hamstrung because of all these people hated this contest, and they didn't want him to participate. And essentially they said, we have to protect our guy. He's got to fight against Ken Norton in the Yankee Stadium in September. We really can't get hurt. Let's take away everything we can from Inoki. There's a famous story that Freddie Pacheco, who's his uh, Ali's longtime physician, told me. They're in the late into the morning. I think it was Wednesday morning of fight week. Hisashi Shinma, which is Inoki's famous manager, he's uh, I think uh, involved in the WWE in some way at that time. Um, essentially, he took out his wallet and took out his keys and put everything on the table and said, "Take everything I have. I, I have to give you. You're not letting my guy do anything. Just take everything we have. You know, just sign to do the fight." I mean, that's that's how dire it got in terms of actually making it in the end. Mm-hmm. But. That's the major reason for why the fight looked the way it did, for what Inoki's tactics were, why he attacked Muhammad Ali's legs, kicked him over a hundred times. And and what's amazing when you're watching that thing is like if you're to the untrained eye, the whole thing kind of looks like a joke. But the more you watch it, and especially when you start to appreciate fighting more, you realize that no, 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 he's got, that's like hitting his, his calves with tree trunks while he's down there on the ground. And you were saying in the book, 
that Ali got blood clots in his legs because of how hard. Now Ali was no selling these kicks, so it looked he was doing a great job of just looking at Antonio Inoki like I don't even feel it. He was yelling at him, I don't even feel it, I don't even feel it. But in reality, I mean, he kicked blood clots into his legs, did he not? He did, and he felt it. I mean, even the, as hard as he was no selling, there were a few of them where you could just see in his face. And there's a, there's a characteristic among fighters. He said, I covered mixed martial arts for 16 years now. I've seen enough fights where yeah. when you see a guy take a shot and act like it didn't hurt, that one hurt. And that's, you know, Ali was doing a lot of that. There's no question that he was in tremendous pain. His, his left leg, which was his lead leg, almost blew up to double the size on the quad. Oh. His right leg was really damaged. And this is not just him taking kicks with a shin. Inoki's wearing a full-strapped wrestling boot up to the midway of his shin. You know, these eyelets are, like, digging into him and the whole thing. It was really ugly. Uh, he went on an uh, exhibition tour to Korea for three days afterwards. He really shouldn't have gone. His whole team was begging him not to go. They were really concerned. But he made a commitment again, and, and he went and did it. And then he returned to the U.S., and as soon as he deplaned in Los Angeles, immediately went to the hospital. <laughs> he was in the hospital for four days. He was on blood thinners, uh, really uh, concerned about the, about the blood clots. took him about six weeks before he could uh, heal up to do, start doing road work again. Um, I, I think it had an enormous impact in terms of his final demise right he'd he'd been through so many wars and the toll on his body from boxing was tremendous um uh, but he always had his legs and the legs were always the first line of defense for ali as soon as that went he just couldn't muster anything he never knocked anyone down again you could really see him laboring in fights most people thought he didn't win against ken norton that september so you know this was really the end And, and he says he told people that were around him, that this was the biggest mistake that he ever did to fight this guy. Well, yeah, that, that's what I wanted to ask you because, you know, Ali historians don't talk about this fight ever. So that's, I, I love that perspective that you have where if we're really like, let's not ignore this fight just because on TV it looked foolish. Like, let's actually talk about the impact it had and the fact that this is the fight that took out Ali's legs. Ali, you're saying later in his life, you think would have admitted that, yeah, that fight took my legs from me. There was a matchmaker for, for Top Rank, which is Bob Arum's uh, promotion, and he told me on Twitter, actually, you know, some people have started coming out of the woodworks since the book was published, and mm-hmm. uh, it's getting a lot of discussion, and the 40th anniversary just passed. Uh, and he said himself that Ali told him that it was the worst mistake, and he wished he'd never done it. Partially, I think, because he didn't get the money that he was promised. He was guaranteed $3 million. He only walked away with 1.8, and he could have made up the six to the pay-per-view or the closed circuit, excuse me, uh, been a success. And, you know, a lot of uh, the pro wrestling houses, a lot of the territories took a bath on it. Um, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a great night for pro wrestling, and it wasn't a great night for uh, the WWF. Although I do think it planted the seeds. This was the second showdown at Shea for them. These were the precursors to WrestleManias. Um, I think it planted the seeds in some way to say, look, pro wrestling can be larger than this territory structure. Pro wrestling can come out of the shadows now. We're associating with people like Muhammad Ali. This is a moment for our expansion. And I think as, as, as soon as Vince uh, Kennedy McMahon took over, you, you really saw his ambitions at play. Um, but it, interestingly enough, I mean, if we could put it into – the timeline and historical context because if we're just looking back on it then yeah like to us this feels like wrestling and and but 1976 is when this fight took place that means and you go oh well you know muhammad ali was at wrestlemania one which was not too long after that but it was 10 years this is 10 years before even the first wrestlemania 
Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, no doubt about it. And I think they did one more showdown in Shea in 1980. I actually think, if I remember correctly, Inoki was on that card. Um, they had talked about Ali doing some refereeing and things like that. Ali was always remained close to pro wrestling people, and he loved it. The Freddie Pacheco uh, described Ali as having the blood of a con man, and he said that was why he loved pro wrestling because of the pro wrestling in some ways is a con. Right. You know, it's a sh- it's a show. Yeah, it's a, and, it's, it's a carny business. Yeah, exactly right. And he was drawn to that and really attracted to it. Um, and I, I don't think uh, I, I don't think it's any coincidence about how close he remained to it and the kind of personality he became. Um, the, you know, he was tied to in some ways to the WWE. I mean, he he really was. Uh, he he was as much as a sportsman as he was a, a pro wrestler and a showman. And I think that's one of the reasons why he resonated across so many different uh, genres and people. They they're captivated by him. He was so compelling, and he played off of all that. Um, this was now, this was long before the great Antonio fight, right? With Inoki? Yes, I think it was before, but, uh, definitely the great Antonio fight is one that, uh, it was fun for me to look at on YouTube. I mean, it's the he best. Just, yeah. <laughs> he, he sure wailed on him. And the guy, I would say the guy deserved it quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, what did you find? Cause, cause a big part of this book is getting into Ali's head. Was Ali... Did he realize? Because in a way, Ali was in over his head when he got in there. Because if you really want to say, I feel like it's pretty obvious that Inoki won the fight. You know, if somebody won the fight in terms of uh, strikes hit, and even in terms of just walking away, being damaged, being what, it seems like Inoki very much won the fight. Was was at any point that Ali realized that he may be in over his head just because of how widespread the rules of wrestling are and how skilled Anoki was at it? You know, I think I think he was aware that he was protected in a lot of ways. There were rope escapes. Uh, he, talked, he talked constantly about rope escapes coming into the fight and how he would rely on that. So he was conscious of the dangers. Again, when he was on The Tonight Show, he spoke about, you know, that he's planning to knock out Anoki. He made allusions to his chin. He called him the pelican and the whole deal. But he he was aware that, he was fighting a guy who was skilled enough and dangerous enough and legitimate that if he grabbed an arm or a leg, he could break something. Ali talked about that. So I, I think not over his head because I don't think Ali ever felt like he was over his head in any kind of situation, but definitely cautious, definitely cautious. And I think you saw that in the way that he approached the bout. I mean, he, again, he never threw a power punch. Um, you know, there was a lot of trepidation on his part. It became a survival match. I, and I think he was really frustrated. You could see his frustration. A lot of the language he used in, in the ring during the contest uh, was just bubbling to the surface because he he couldn't do anything. And Noki had come up with this game plan that he could do under what limited rules he had, and they were hurting Ali, and Ali didn't really have a response to it. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with your statement that Noki won this contest. Of course, there was... It was ruled a draw. There were point deductions, uh, Inoki illegally. The only time he got Inoki, uh, Ali on the floor, he illegally elbowed him on the head. Mm-hmm. That really pissed off Ali. And then in the 13th round, there was a, a, a low blow that Inoki obviously did, the knee to the groin that was plain as day. And he got a deduction there. So, um, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think in today's rules, and I think we know this over the course of these sort of combat sports moments, that generally speaking – the competitor with the greater understanding of how to apply grappling and submission holds is generally going to come out on top, and I, I think Inoki would have done that. Freddie Blassie was in Ali's corner, right? 
he was in his uh, he, he was in his corner, but not really during the contest. He was kind of off to the side, but he was with Ali wherever they went. I mean, when they get off the plane in Tokyo, it's amazing to watch Freddie Blassie go after the Japanese. And he was an icon in Japan because sure. of his contest with Ricky Dozan. Um, I mean, he was feared, like, you know, really scared by the, the Japanese people were fearful of Freddie Blassie. So um, he was important for Ali uh, to come over there. And um, he didn't really have a lot of advice. Ali kind of portrayed him as a guy that was showing him some of the dirty tactics that Inoki was going to employ. But I, I think he was really more someone to rely on as, as a voice, as an emissary, someone to, to watch out for him. And Blassie even said that in his heart, um, he always was going to root for the wrestler, but he really didn't like Inoki because he saw him as trying to capitalize off of Ricky Dozan's name and kind of build off of that and, and take cheap uh, hits with the Japanese fans. Uh, and he was an Ali guy, you know, down to his core. They had a really strong connection, so he was conflicted. And I would imagine, too, that Freddie Blassie must have uh, allowed Ali into the transition. I mean, psychologically smartened up Ali to the world of, of pro wrestling. I, I think so. I, I think they certainly had a lot of discussions. Um, but Freddie Blassie was extremely close to Gene LaBelle, and uh, Gene LaBelle was in the uh, locker room with Ali and Blassie watching the Wefner-Andre the Giant contest before they went out to fight. Uh, and Ali was just enthralled with the wrestling. And so there's no doubt that they've had lots of discussions over the years uh, and lots of talk about pro wrestling and the, the real history of pro wrestling. Pro wrestling used to be catch wrestling, which was legitimate grappling. Right. And, you know, this whole line from where it went from legitimate sport that, you know, thousands of people would come out to watch this stuff to its evolution with the Gold Dust Trio and sort of its popularizing, you know, popularizing during the TV era in the 40s and 50s. You know, all these things come into play. It all ties in. And Ali was aware of all of it. I think in a lot of ways Ali was a historian. And he wanted to do what Dempsey ended up not doing. I think he really wanted to get in the ring with a wrestler or a wrestler, as he called him. <laughs> and, uh, he, he, you know, he, he wanted to be able to prove that, yeah, he was the best boxer in the world, but being the best fighter meant something to him at the end of the day as well. Right. And I think that happens a lot. I mean, you see it with, with, with somebody like Conor McGregor who jumps around weight classes because all of a sudden these guys prove that they're the best in a weight class or Ali proves that he's the best boxer and this competitiveness in them causes them to push forward and find something new that they can be the best in. No question. And Ali was as competitive as anyone who ever walked the face of the earth. Right. Um, right. That's, I mean, I was, I was actually surprised like, okay, here's the guy who calls himself the greatest of all time. And obviously his record is impeccable. And he put himself on the line countless times. And you, you recognize someone like that's going to be pretty damn competitive. But just talking to the people who are around him, he, it's, his competitiveness was insatiable. And it's, this is a major reason why he decided to take this on. Um, you know, if you challenged him, he was going to say yes. And that's basically what it came down to. How did the pro wrestling community react to Inoki after this? Like, how did they think his performance was? Was he looked at as a hero because he figured out how to, you know, work the boxer, how to not look like a fool? Or was he not looked at well because the, it was not a success? No, I don't. I don't think he was looked at well at all, uh, especially in the U.S. I mean, Bruno San Martino was highly critical of Inoki's performance. There's great audio, uh, actually, just uh, kind of came out recently. Uh, Bill After and um, and um, San Martino, their commentary 
on the Shea Stadium infield as the as the closed circuit is playing out. You can just hear the frustration in his voice, and I think that was echoed by a lot in the a lot of people in the pro wrestling world because this was a big night for them. There was right. an opportunity to, you know, what happens if Antonio Inoki actually took down Muhammad Ali and put him in a you know, put him in a submission, put him in some catch holds. You know, what does that do for pro wrestling? And it seemed like such a missed opportunity. I think a lot of people were really upset by that, plus the financial realities of the contest and whether people lost money or took a bath. I think that had a lot to do with it. In Japan, Inoki took some hits from the press. They thought it was an embarrassment and he didn't represent himself well. But he's he's a survivor, Inoki. Oh, yeah. I mean, a total survivor. And he is someone who, uh, no matter what the situation is, he's a chameleon, right? He can adapt to wherever he's at in that moment. And he got past this. Um, you know, he, he really got past it. And, you know, he's had a few uh, controversies along the way that he's had to na- navigate. But still today, I mean, you're talking someone in their mid-70s who remains one of the most famous faces in Japan, and he's an active politician. And And, um, and WWE put him in the Hall of Fame. Clearly, and they should. I mean, he represented but the WWF martial arts belt for years. He's another know? one, though, that you go over Inoki's amazing pro wrestling career, and it is amazing, but this doesn't come up when you go over it too much. You know, it's it's kind of an offshoot, like, oh, there was this weird thing that happened over here. But here is the Antonio. When you go to the video package, you don't see the Ali stuff. This is, again, for both these guys that thing off to the side that if we want to tell a weird story, we will. But when it's time to celebrate their career, we won't talk about this. Yeah, I think that's too bad. And I understand the people who were there who had real strong feelings about it. But for me, you know, I was six months old when this fight happened. And I grew up um, professionally as a journalist around mixed martial arts. And I went to Japan 12 times and I covered Pride and I, I saw Inoki and I was around Inoki and all these kinds of people... Even despite all that, I wasn't aware of all the strains that came together on this night in 76 and what they eventually led to, because I do think this night inspired the pro sport mixed martial arts in many, many ways. Um, it, it, yeah, it's wild. I thought that WWE put together a great tribute, uh, a nice two-minute video of the contest they, they posted on their social media was fun. Yeah, yeah, I like uh, that. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, it, it has been an afterthought, um, and I, I hope in some way that I've reframed it for people, that people see it in a new context, and if they read the book, they have an understanding that this thing actually meant a lot, that Ali had a lot of guts for getting in there, that Inoki and his lineage and his history is incredibly important, and at the end of the day, it's, you can't really separate these businesses. They're almost one and the same. The book is called Ali versus Inoki. It's by Josh Gross, and uh, it really is good. You should definitely check it out. Go to Amazon. Uh, actually, you can go to NotSam.com and click the podcast link, and you can use our Amazon link that's on the podcast page over there to pick up this book because it really is. I mean, to me, it's it's this little piece of history where all these different things intertwine where it's pro wrestling. It's, it's, I mean, immensely important history in pro wrestling because it, it could be argued that it's the first it step into the world of sports entertainment, which is what we now know pro wrestling to be. It's it's you know the foundation for MMA. It's boxing history. Did you spend any time growing up a wrestling fan, or is this something? Did you have to kind of heavily research to understand pro wrestling culture? Because it is pro wrestling culture is a world into and of itself. 
I definitely had to do a lot of catch-up and a lot of research. I think my pro wrestling days kind of died when Captain Lou Albano, you know, kind of, he was the Saturday morning cartoon, and I was watching that. And, you know, I think when I was 12 or 13, I kind of moved past it. But um, in the MMA world, uh, a lot of people remain fans of pro wrestling. And so in my Twitter feed all the time, I'm, I'm seeing it, uh, you know, again, these worlds intertwining. But I was, I was enormously uh, helped by people like Dave Meltzer um, and other people who were around the business for a long time. Dave's actually a character in a book because um, he watched the closed circuit live um, from a, a venue near San Jose, California, where he's from. And so his recollections were important. Yeah. Uh, people like people like Josh Barnett, who's wrestled in Japan and could really help uh, tie the binds of the fight world and the pro wrestling world. I mean, he was close with the Noki. He had intimate conversations with the Noki that he shared with me. Uh, there was a, um, a WWE writer, Dan Madigan, who worked there uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, he is uh, quoted in the book, and he was great for researching, you know, trying to get the understanding of what people around the WWE in its current form think about this contest and think about this match. So I did as best as I could to fill the gaps. Uh, the WWE didn't uh, really want to participate. I tried many times to mm. uh, speak to Vince uh, McMahon. And, um, Do you have any idea why? I, you know, look, I think... Uh, I think, you know, you don't want to lift the veil too much. And, you know, for me, my reputation as a reporter in MMA uh, is a, a pretty straight shooter, someone who's going to ask her tougher questions maybe. And right. I think per, I think perhaps for them uh, it was best just to let the story unfold. You know, Vince uh, uh, made some comments in Freddie Blassie's biography about this contest because uh, he says he was in Japan, and there's a really kind of wild story about um, if Ali was kind of getting the better of Inoki and the match wasn't going the way that they expected it to go, that him and Freddie Blassie and Gene LaBelle, who was the referee, were conspiring to actually cut Ali with a razor. Mm-hmm. It's a wild story, and I couldn't believe it when I saw it. And I, I, re- I reached out to them. I said, is this story accurate? Can I ask you about this story? And I never really got much of a return in terms of my request. So, But they weren't the only one. Bob Arum didn't want to talk to me. Uh, this was a bad moment, I think, in his career as a promoter. Um, you know, the financials were tricky for him. He hates mixed martial arts, I think a large reason because of this night. Um, it, it was... It was fun to put together. You know, I relied on a lot of media reports to be shocked by how the newspapers covered this contest. Uh, I was on the front page of major daily newspapers across the U.S. in 1976 for a week during that fight week. And um, there was a lot to draw upon. But I I did learn a lot about the pro wrestling business, and I'm not necessarily a fan of pro wrestling in that I watch Raw Mm -hmm. every Monday. But I do respect pro wrestling much, much more now than I did after writing this book. And and, and for for those and many other reasons, I'm glad I did it. So let's talk. I mean, while I have an MMA reporter on the phone, it would seem uh, uh, foolish of me not to ask your opinion, number one, on uh, Brock coming back for UFC 200. I think it's, I think it's great. You do? And, um, if, yeah, oh yeah. And if Brock Lesnar is healthy and he wants to fight, I, I, I hope he does it as often as he can because he's a special kind of athlete. I think he's a born fighter. He's one of these guys who, in the heyday of shooters, would have been right at the top of the list. And, um, you know, I saw Brock's first fight uh, as a professional at the L.A. Coliseum. And that night I was like, this guy is a special, real deal. And I felt we were robbed uh, as a mixed martial arts industry at the UFC because of his diverticulitis and his health issues. So it's good to see him fighting again. I'm excited to see that. And you almost felt that way literally as you were watching him. His last fight was against Alistair Overeem, right? Yeah, I think I think that's right. And when when you saw him, when Alistair hit him in the in the ab, abdomen there, 
and you just saw the pained expression on Brock's face, and that was kind of that moment where you're like, no, not like this. Not like this. Yeah, unfortunately, it's the the hurt business. It's the real business. You know, right. there's, um, you know, when you're shooting versus working, they're different things. And, and a guy like Lesnar uh, obviously knows the difference as much as anyone. Um, I'm excited to see him fight. I think it's great that the WWE and the UFC could collaborate and make that happen. What do you think? Least, you know, uh, I, I was going to ask you. He's WWE has said that they're planning on him wrestling at SummerSlam, which is about five weeks after UFC, five or six weeks. I don't know after UFC. 200 uh obviously they have a strict concussion policy you know you're not wrestling if you get a concussion six weeks later odds are you won't wrestle because they're super strict about everything what are the odds in a fight against a guy like he's fighting that brock is able to actually make the SummerSlam date do you think Mark Hunt is a beast, yes, and he is one of the heaviest hitters in the sport, and he's a dangerous guy for Brock to fight. Uh, and so you give a lot of credit to Lesnar for agreeing to that. You know, you don't want to make too many guesses because in mixed martial arts, you never know what's going to happen. But um, that that seems like uh, quite a quite a gamble. I, I would imagine that the odds would be against him participating, but again, you never know. And what about what is it? UFC two hundred two, two hundred three in uh, Cleveland uh, with yes. Punk. Yeah, two or three with CM Punk. Finally, the, fat, the first chance I ever had a chance to speak with you, Sam, was on my podcast, and I had you on talking about CM Punk. And, and I mean, that was forever ago. I mean, <laughs> that was I don't know, fifteen years ago. Or yeah. whatever. But you know, I, I thought at the time I was like, this is a really smart signing by the UFC. This guy's got a lot of um, a heat behind him. People are excited to see CM Punk, and I took him to be one of these wrestlers who had some sense of how to shoot, of, you know, sort of the catch understanding. Um, you know, some of that, it, it, but apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently he was going into this pretty cold, and all the reports that I heard from behind the scenes in terms of his sparring were not pretty, and I think it took him a while to get up to speed. I don't know where he is right now, but I know my interest in him is waning quite a lot, considering his age and everything else. Um, but I do think, you know, hey, anybody that's got the guts to actually step in there for a fight deserves respect, and he's going to do that. He's going to live up to his word. That's the plan. Um, so all those things are good, but I'm not sure it's the event that the UFC hopes it would be when they first signed him. Yeah, I also think that uh, the one factor that wasn't a factor for Brock Lesnar because of how short his pro wrestling career had been is that, you know, every athlete has injuries, but when you're a pro wrestler and you've gone 10, 15, however many years, night in, night out wrestling, lingering injuries are something that I think pop up in pro wrestling more so than any other sport. And you end up, you know, a year removed, and all of a sudden you realize you need a surgery here or this is acting up there, and that thing that was just kind of annoying you for seven, eight years has now become a serious uh, 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 thing. I think that's another thing that's delayed punk and, and something that I worry about being a factor in these fights, that he is coming in with a lot of... of lingering injuries from from all his years of pro wrestling sure seems so yeah the the, the toll of pro wrestling is well known and it takes uh, it takes a pound of flesh um a lot like uh mixed martial arts does or, or grappling sports do uh there's no question i mean it's basically stunt work with sport and entertainment i mean that's what you're what you're talking about and it's uh can be very dangerous um, and so, yeah, I wonder about him, and I wonder about his athleticism at this point and how he can move and all sorts of things that he's going to have to have up to speed. Now, I don't think they're giving him a, the toughest opponent here, and he shouldn't get one. He's never had a fight. So, right. um, I, you know, I, again, um, 
maybe I looked at him in the wrong way when they brought him in. I looked at him as a guy that could be like a Kazushi Sakuraba type, you know, a guy who could actually uh, move over from catch wrestling or professional wrestling into the uh, real fight world and have some success and become like a real big star for them. Lesnar, he, he hasn't done the pro wrestling nearly as long, but, you know, he was a national champion wrestler for the University of Minnesota, right? So this is someone with the pedigree. And I, I don't think necessarily that, that, that CM Punk had that. But again, you know, um, he's trying something new, and, and I always respect anyone who gets into a cage to fight professionally or amateur-wise. There's a lot of people who say they would do it and never do it, but if he gets in there and does it, then no matter what happens, win, lose, or draw, uh, I think I think uh, he deserves respect. And I, I imagine if he doesn't look good, a lot of people will let him know, but, you know, he, he's going to walk away and go to bed knowing that those people who are criticizing him would never have the guts to do what he did, and I'm sure he'll be fine with it. That's true. That's a great, great point. Well, maybe we'll talk again uh, about any of those topics, but it's always good talking to you man i recommend everybody pick up this book ali versus Enoki. the author is josh gross you can get it all over the place uh and yeah this i mean it's a really really well researched well done interesting story and you know it goes through the entire process it goes through all the promoters it talks about vince mcmahon jr and vince mcmahon senior and everybody across the united states who was promoting it and how andre the giant was involved in the freddie blassie and then literally goes round for round of the 15-round fight in one chapter and just explains how what was happening in each round. Um, and that's not something you're going to be able to get just by watching it on YouTube. So, uh, yeah, super, super fascinating. Thanks for uh, chatting, Josh. Thank you so much, Sam. Really appreciate it. All right, man, I'll talk to you again. Here is Sam Roberts. Big thanks to Josh for coming on the show and talking about the book. Again, it's a great book, and it really is an absolutely fascinating story. Uh, about what went into this match and and everything. You know, it's important uh, to think differently about things. It's important to be able to try new things. I think that was part of the attractiveness of Ali versus Antonio Inoki, and that's why things like that are still tried to this day. Trying something new. Looking at things, and and even, even content delivery. Delivering content in a new way. Even food delivery. That's right. It was a segue because I want to tell you about this great new service uh, that I've, uh, I've, I've, I've just learned of. It's called Blue Apron. Wait till you hear about this. Uh, it's a place that has fresh, high-quality ingredients, and those are good because they taste better. And they're better for you. It's important to know where your food comes from. You watch all these documentaries about how bad food is nowadays. You can't eat out anywhere. You can't eat fast food. Uh, Everything is processed. Everything is awful for you. Well, along comes this service. And now you can get fresh, high-quality ingredients. Uh, uh, You can get ingredients shipped right to your house with directions on how to make a meal. All of a sudden, you're a hero. All of a sudden, the woman of the household is going to be like, when did you learn how to cook? And you're like, honey, I can whip up something like this anytime you want. And the reason you can do that is because of Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. It's a brilliant idea. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. This is what they have in July. 
They've got a creamy shrimp fettuccine with sautéed green beans and spinach. They've got a sweet chili chicken with Tinkerbell peppers, green beans, and jasmine rice. They've got a spiced steak and tomato avocado salad uh, with creamy cone cabbage and red onion slaw. People are going to think you're a Michelin chef. It's amazing. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping. That's right. Thanks to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast, you're eating for free. Go to blueapron.com slash Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Roberts. Your first three meals are free with free shipping. Blueapron.com slash Roberts. That's Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook, and it's a better way to be here on Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. I'm very, very excited for you guys to to try that out, and I'm very, very excited to talk about what's going on in the world of uh, pro wrestling with the lovely Miss Katie Linendahl. Of course, uh, a lot to come out of Raw. It was interesting. I mean, Roman's absence was definitely felt. It was unexpected, I felt, that they acknowledged it as much as they did, um, but they did. And I like the way they acknowledged it. I'll get into that in the state of wrestling. I also uh, think it's uh, uh, worth noting that you can check on YouTube. I finally uploaded my video. I forgot I hadn't uploaded it. But my interview with Chris Hero, you can see the video. I recorded it in the amazing AfterBuzz TV studios. That was while I was out in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. Kevin Undergaro and Maria Menunos. But, I mean, really, Kevin Undergaro has built an amazing set up out there. If I was out in LA, I'd be doing this show out of there. I would beg, I would pay to use the AfterBuzz Studios. You'll see if you look at the video uh, how amazing it is. Uh, the only reason I would stay on the East Coast is because there's more wrestling shows out there. The problem is hard to get tickets sometimes. You know where I'm going with this? Ha <laughs> ha! Gotcha again. It's SeatGeek. Always the first place uh, to look for tickets to a game or concert. It's it, This is why you need to do it. You get the SeatGeek app on your phone, uh, and you can find them right there. I have found that there is no easier way to get tickets for an event and to find a better deal. Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans, and that's what we all are. SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek is going to do all the work. You save time and money. Uh, SeatGeek uh, wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. You'll see every ticket you go to. It's I've seen this. It's great. Every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. So you'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. So what do you want to do? You could pay more if you want to set up close. You can find a great deal. You can find whatever you're looking for as far as tickets go at SeatGeek. Uh, best of all, wait till you hear this. My listeners, the listeners of Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast, are going to get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's right. Here's how you get $20 rebate on tickets. So, I mean, you want to go to NXT in August? You want to go to SummerSlam? You want to find out how to get these tickets? Here's how you're going to do it. you got to download the SeatGeek app. It's free. Just download it on your phone. Search SeatGeek app. Download. Then once it's downloaded, you open it up. You go to the settings tab, and you click add a promo code. 
Once you've done that, enter the promo code SAM, S-A-M. SeatGeek is going to send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code SAM, S-A-M, today. Uh, 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 It's going to be great. It's going to be great, uh, and I would recommend it. Now, speaking of great, we have a lot of great things to talk about in State of Wrestling, so let's get to it. State of Wrestling time, baby, here on the podcast. It's now time for this week's State of Wrestling. And welcome to the State of Wrestling. Katie Linendahl is here. This podcast, we'd like to thank for promotional consideration the letter C, as in... (laughs) And the letter S, as in Sister Nero. But you don't, you don't pronounce the C when you call. You hit the letter C as in the letter A. <laughs> yeah, that middle letter. That's the one that's there. It is. There it is. Welcome to the state of wrestling. So much going on. So much going on. So much to cover. You first of all, I got a text from you. Explain to me. I got a text from you last night. Yeah. Because you know everybody. Everybody knows by now. I watch Raw late. I watch it on Monday night, but at like. One o'clock, two o'clock in the morning when I get home. Well, because your show's on, but that's a tease because you you watch the first hour, yeah. so you're available for texting for an hour, and right. then it's like, oh, right, and then I don't you have, have to anybody wait. to talk to. But you told me you found Raw to be weird. I thought it was really weird. Tell I thought me the about whole it. format was just totally different, and I I was wondering if I was in my own world at that mm-hmm. point. Why do you think it was weird? I thought the recaps were weird. Like, yeah. I, I, did you not think the announcing was weird? What? How so? For example, about three quarters of the way through, it was like we were we were watching a soap opera in which they gave us the full rundown. Not like that's anything new. Yeah, but it was just it was even even. It seemed more, more over the top to you. More over the top. I missed the uh, money in the bank is like a second WrestleMania. I know, <laughs> I know that that's what it's like. Stop saying it. Um, I thought here's what I thought. I mean, I thought my vibe from Raw. Well, this I mean, right w- off the top too. Right. My vibe from Raw this week was that the Roman Reigns thing was not planned in advance. I disagree. So you're... I have a strong opinion on this. Oh, so, so the argument or, you know, discussion, whatever, the speculation that we were talking about last week was Roman gets suspended for 30 days. The suspension comes down on Tuesday. Sunday, he loses the title. Monday, he qualifies for the triple threat. Tuesday, he gets suspended. A lot of people are saying that WWE knew about it. Before Monday, some people saying before Sunday, I felt like they were trying to pick up the pieces a little bit this week on Raw, and it gave me the impression that they had not known in advance of Tuesday that Roman was going to get suspended. I thought you were saying something else. Oh. Understood. Yeah, yeah. It felt to me, and that maybe is why everything felt a little bit out of sorts. Because I, I didn't, I, I, it seemed like they were, okay, well, now something kind of unexpected happened, so we got to fix this. But also acknowledge it. I couldn't believe that they acknowledged it. So here's what I think. And by the way, I, I think we need to put everything into context because a lot of people are talking about the direction the product's in and how it's a little bit chaotic. And now we just went from having all these guys injured. Now the face of the company or the next face of the company, quote unquote, now he is suspended for 30 days. But because this is what I do in my free time, I was reading Wrestling Observer newsletters from 1991 and 1992 this week for like a big chunk of the afternoon. Me too, said no one else. (laughs) It's really good (laughs) because you go back. I love going back and reading old Wrestling Observers because I read about the stuff that I watched when I was a kid. 
and that wasn't being covered on the internet because there was no internet. So it's like all these stories that you've kind of half heard throughout, you know, the years and whatever, the the legend, you actually see the way it was being reported in these newsletters at the time. I don't know. To me, I just geek out over it. No, that's interesting. What was the snapshot of what was happening? Well, the reason I bring it up is because people tend to forget, and maybe it's because they're like part of our generation or some even younger that don't realize that the stuff that we were growing up with in the early to mid-90s was maybe the most pieced together awful thing WWE has ever been. I mean, you want to talk about chaos, and this is going to be a heartbreaker for you. I mean, WrestleMania 9 era WWE was like, if we had been in our 30s watching that, I would have been doing a podcast about how the company was completely falling apart. That's and my favorite WrestleMania. Because we're kids, because we're eight, nine, ten years old, we don't know what's going on. But when you really think about it, it's like, okay, Hulk Hogan's been gone forever. He comes back, he's completely smaller than he ever was because he's not on steroids anymore. Bret Hart just got this shot at being champion. They were moving in a different direction. Now Bret Hart loses to Yokozuna, and Yokozuna loses two seconds later to Hulk Hogan, just completely making Bret Hart look like a chump. But even before that, I, I, the more you look into it, the more you realize that WWE was in – they did a lot of damage right around the time of WrestleMania Seven. I think that's when it really started. That was Slaughter versus Hogan. And I would argue that they didn't get out of the funk that started around the time of WrestleMania Seven until you could say WrestleMania Twelve which was Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. But an even stronger argument would be WrestleMania 14, which was Michaels Austin. You're talking about a good seven years of trying to figure it out. And that's because Hogan is here and then he's gone and then he's here and now he's in WCW and everybody's quitting and the Warriors on steroids. The Warriors here, he's back, he's here, he's back, he's gone, he quits. British Bulldog quits. Like everybody is like, okay, we're going to go with this guy. Oh, this guy quit. Okay, now there's the steroid scandal. Now there's the sex abuse scandal. Now there's... And all this chaos was going on. So if you really want to take a glimpse into a chaotic WWE, that's it's, it's just really something to look at and think about. And go back and watch, like, old, old pay-per-views from when we were growing up. And WrestleMania 9, though, why do you have to shine a spotlight on the best one of all time? It's like, literally you know that's my favorite. It's, it's literally I, – I find it hard to think of – I love WrestleMania 9. Bobby the Brain came out on a camel backwards. Tatanka versus Shawn Michaels. Undertaker was smuggled with chloroform. That's the point. Come on. It may be the worst WrestleMania of all time. It was fantastic. Well, maybe that just says we're messed up. Maybe that's what that says. That's because we're kids and we love the campiness of it all. But none of it made any sense. None of it. Every moment of that. You know how now everybody is so smart? And they all go like, oh, Bray Wyatt's being buried. Oh, how is (laughs) Neville supposed to look strong now? Uh, But... (laughs) If you go back to, like, WrestleMania 9, you can realize that nobody was made to look strong on the entire pay-per-view except one guy. The Giant Gonzalez? No, Hulk Hogan. Oh. Giant Gonzalez didn't even look strong because he's this big guy who, in order to hurt The Undertaker, needed to, have, like, date rape him. Needed Under- a chloroform rag. Undervalued. A Giant Gonzalez was. Different, but effective. Right. Right. I mean, you, you'd love that. But... The reason that I bring that up is because it, it gave me a whole new context to watch all the confusion 
of this week's episode of Raw because I was like, this is nothing <laughs> compared to what you were working with in 92. 92? WrestleMania 8 ends with Papa Shango botching the finish? Ugh. Ugh. Blech. Then they try to start Warrior versus Sid Justice, but then Sid quits. And now it's Warrior versus Ric Flair, but then Warrior quits. Now it's Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels somehow. And guess what? All that confusion. They were like, I don't know what to do anymore. Uh, 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 Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. That's a good match. And it became one of the greatest rivalries of all time. And quite possibly that match was the catalyst for the entire Attitude Era. It headlined Survivor Series 1992. That was when Bret Hart had just won the title. It was Bret versus Shawn in 92. Five years later, at Survivor Series 97, that same match that was literally the WWE going, it's all we have left. That same match rose to the point that not only did it headline a pay-per-view, but it was the catalyst for the Mr. McMahon character and the entire Attitude Era. It's just, it, it's interesting to look at from a full picture perspective. That's well done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, what I spend my time thinking about. But that said, what's going on right now is super, super interesting to me. Number one, I kind of want to see a five-way <laughs> battleground. I kind of want to see the Shield and AJ and John Cena. I'm like, all these guys are great. Yeah, let's get them all in the ring at once. I like everyone in there. But they're not going to do that. They're still going to do the triple threat, obviously. I think any Raw that gives me an excuse, why are you scowling at me? No, no, no. I'm, oh, I'm you're just thinking, kind of. I'm in thinking mode. Yeah, you're just kind of like, where is he going? Can we back up one second, though? Yes. Because I thought that the whole acknowledgement of Reigns. Yes. For a hot second, and I just want to get through this. For a hot second, I thought maybe it was improv until they put up the tweet. You, you oh, got to plan that. They and, worked you. Yeah. They worked you a little well, you bit. you know I'm naive. You are. About that kind of stuff. You are. Hey, so, I got a live mic. I got a mic live. I, what's that say? Oh, live mic. <laughs> Reading the script. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, that was far from improv, but it was still well done. So let's let's talk about the fact that uh, any Raw, first of all, there was weirdness on Raw. Um, you know, first of all, the Tampa crowd was dead. What? That crowd was dead. I thought. Like, they, they didn't make a sound for half the show. What show were you watching? Raw? Really? Yeah. I mean, do we start with the wave? Yeah, but it was like, I have never seen anybody work so hard to get a wave. By the way, that was one of the best segments of the night, the Enzo and Cass segment. It was strong. But I, he really had to work. Like, he was pointing. He was like, no, let's keep going. Let's keep going, guys. Like, Enzo was putting in work to get that reaction. It was not like oh, I didn't think so. one of those European crowds that just like goes nuts and waves and is like, no, that was Enzo. He worked for that wave. He earned that wave. You know, it's great to see jobbers again. And by the way, what a device. Oh, love jobbers. What a device to make Cass. Because cause you'll say to me, Sam, would you go back on what you said now? Right. Because Enzo was controlling the promo, not Cass. And I would say Absolutely not, because Enzo controlling the promo and the whole match, that entire segment was designed around Cass being a monster. Did you see everything that he did in the ring was what I was saying when they debuted. Everything that he did, with the reason that they had jobbers in the ring was so Cass 
look like a giant monster. That's why he was big booting him. That's why he gets that boot up so high now. That's why the social outcast, as awkward as the, that whole exchange became very awkward. Weird. But when they entered the ring, and I, by the way, would make Cass even more of a monster. Make it seem like Cass can take out all three social outcasts. And I'll bet they will. I thought that was on the other side of the spectrum. I thought that made them more look like a collective and brought back the, the, the tag effort, especially that you bring another tag out. I believe that what they're doing is they're subtly, through the tag, building Cass into a monster. And, and that's everything that he did, his facials, his this, his, the whole thing was like, it was, it's very Sean and Diesel. It's very Sean and Diesel. And you're probably thinking to me now, well, yeah, it's Sean and Diesel. Who's the star there? Sean. Okay. But when they, who headlined the WrestleMania when they broke up? Right. Well, I guess they actually fought each other. But Diesel was the champion. When, she, when they broke up, Sean and Diesel, Sean ended up being the star. But they gave Diesel a year. As a babyface champion, the reason Sean became a star is because Diesel didn't draw any money. But he was a good bouncer at the Heartbreak Hotel. Yes, yeah, exactly. He was a strong. Sean bouncer. did the whole interview segment. Diesel was just the bouncer. Yeah, all the whole time that was being done to give Diesel the uh, presence of being this strong guy who can beat anyone. I think the difference there was though, was with. Uh, Big Daddy Cool. That's right. Sean at the time. Right. Sean came up before him. Diesel was an add-on later. With with Cass and Enzo coming in as a package right out the gate, it's weird to see them make that break. I feel like this this tag thing is going to like work itself out for a little bit. I don't know. I don't think so. How long do you think give it? Honestly, I could see them breaking draft? them up at the draft. They're going to have to do some of that. Someone – there are going to be teams or a team. Something like that has to happen at the draft. And whoa, those moments have to happen. Not every team is going to remain. Well, I think New Day's guaranteed a something Just, weird. You think they would break up New Day? Well, because the whole Wyatt thing's getting it's getting a little weird. Here's why I don't continuing. think continuing. Here's why I don't think they would break up New Day merchandise. They're selling That's way too point. much merchandise to break them up. I would think that'd be crazy to me to break up New Day just because they are still consistently selling merchandise. There is something interesting going on with Xavier. Which I like that, but I, I that could easily I think that's going to end up being like a schmoz, you know what I mean? Mm. Like like Xavier's going to turn around. I wasn't scared at all, but I think th- I, I I could still easily see Enzo and Cass being broken up. Enzo going to SmackDown and Cass being the big man on Raw, and I think that 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 was something that was shown when Enzo was out with his concussion, and that's just one of those things. Now that doesn't mean Enzo's not going to be successful. But it is a shame to see – if we see the tag break up, it's, it's a shame to see the tag break up. But it is, it is what it is. Um, but let's talk about that opening segment. Uh, any, any weird or not, anytime I get an excuse to watch a Seth Rollins-John Cena match on Raw, yeah. I'm happy. I love Seth Rollins versus John Cena as a match. It's the best. The best. When John Cena's in the ring with somebody who's amazing, he puts on amazing matches every time. People, I, I'll probably get murdered for this because everybody says, who do you think CM Punk's best opponent in WWE was? A lot of people would say Daniel Bryan. There is no doubt in my mind that the best CM Punk match in WWE was CM Punk versus John Cena every single time. 
whether it was the Money in the Bank 2011 match, whether it was the Raw match. To me, one of the best, the best match of that year was the Raw match that John Cena and CM Punk had uh, to qualify for the world title match at WrestleMania against The Rock. That CM Punk John Cena match was like one of my favorite matches I've ever seen. Those two together are magic, but John Cena's magic with a lot of people who have great ability. Uh, who, by the way, that's not to say John Cena doesn't have great ability, but I think Seth Rollins and John Cena also have quite a bit of magic when they're in the ring together. Uh, here's what I think about the opening segment. So I watched it twice all the way through because <laughs> I was trying to get my head around it. Because you were multitasking reading The Observer. <laughs> yeah, reading other wrestling stuff. <laughs> um, I think that uh, at first I was super psyched. Because, like, Roman was getting I, – I was like, Roman's getting buried here. Seth Rollins is calling him an embarrassment. Stephanie McMahon's coming out and saying, yeah, he's an embarrassment. I'm like, yeah, they're burying Roman. Good. Good. This is what – and remember I was talking about last week how – and I talked about it on the YouTube show as well – how Roman is just not – he's not supposed to be the face of the company. That it's okay that he's losing that position because it was the wrong position for him anyway. Mm-hmm. I said – they must be on the same wavelength as me because they're they're uh, uh, making this a thing and kind of and pointing it out on television and calling him an embarrassment to pull him away from being the face of the company. So that when he comes back, he's pissed. I'm like, this is great. But then I watched it again. I was like, let me let me really take a look at what's going on here. And I'm I think that their actual intention with that segment. And I've told you this, I don't know how many times. I think that they were trying to gain sympathy for Roman Reigns because of Dean Ambrose. Because Dean Ambrose, and I guess the first time I watched it, I wasn't even paying attention to Dean Ambrose. But Dean Ambrose comes out and he goes, we all make mistakes. It's cool. Like, it's no big deal. He should still be in the match. We all make mistakes. And because he's the good guy champion, Dean Ambrose is the one we're supposed to be relating to. Seth Rollins throwing Roman Reigns under the bus, I think, was supposed to be a bad guy doing a weaselly thing and hitting a guy when he's down to make himself look better, not pointing out somebody's for real flaws because of the way Ambrose came in and said, we all make mistakes, bro. It's it's all good. I'm the dude. Do you think they should have acknowledged it at all? Yeah, you have to. I mean, how do you build to a triple threat match with two guys for 30 days? You know, I mean, everybody knows it happened. Is the biggest wrestling news all of last week. And you've got a triple threat match. He's in the main event when he comes back from his suspension. So I, I think you definitely acknowledge it. But here's what's happening. And hopefully, you know, they weren't trying to gain sympathy for Roman Reigns because it will never work. Because Seth Rollins was right. It is embarrassing that Roman Reigns got suspended. And it is unfair that Roman Reigns is getting suspended for 30 days. And after the 30 days, he's going to be in the main event of a pay-per-view for the world title. Like, all the stuff Seth Rollins was saying was correct. And furthermore, when you... The problem is, if you want a a bad guy to deliver that message so that it, it comes across like, oh, the bad guy's being mean, we feel bad for the good guy, then that's fine. That's psychology 101. The problem is Seth Rollins, as the bad guy to deliver that message, is the best wrestler on the roster. Like, your bad guy Seth Rollins is 
far and away the best performer you have. So at no point will he be able to make Roman Reigns look good by trashing him because we all know. And two weeks ago, we watched a documentary about how Seth Rollins fought like no one's ever fought before to come back from a possibly career-ending knee injury. Seth Rollins doesn't come across like a Weasley bad guy anymore. Seth Rollins is the obvious future face of the company. Everything you wanted Roman Reigns to be is who Seth Rollins is. Seth Rollins is the guy who you put the company on the back. They already showcased that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put him on the Today Show after WrestleMania when he won. Well, yeah, they they put the champion, and he did great on the Today Show. But Seth Rollins is your guy. Seth Rollins is is the guy who's going to give up everything for the company. Seth Rollins is the guy that can perform anywhere. Seth Rollins is the guy. How many times have you and I interviewed Seth Rollins? Many times, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes for two minutes here, sometimes for a little longer there. And I even more than us. I've interviewed him. Have you ever seen him be unpleasant? No. 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 And that's, that. I mean, he's a likable guy even when he's getting pounded with interviews. He's still doing autograph sessions. I watch people who buy those VIP tickets to the wrestling shows. And Seth is the guy doing photo ops, you know, Seth, he's still doing all this and he's, he's, he's working every show. He always delivers good matches. He always delivers good promos. And what did I tell you about that shield segment before the pay-per-view when you were like, weren't you happy to see all three shield members back in the ring? I said, what took away from that segment was the fact that Seth Rollins, it was a Seth Rollins segment because he outperformed, he outperforms everybody. Seth Rollins is the guy. Like there, there, there's this, there's this struggle to find who is the person he feels relevant. By the way, you know he's young. He feels young. He feels relevant. He feels like a product of this generation. You know what I mean? He is a wrestler that a millennial wrestling fan could look at and understand. Oh, I get that guy. You know, he's CrossFit Jesus. He's got an amazing look. Really? He's the guy. He is the guy. He is, aside from your John Cena's and your, you know, the guys over here, when you're looking at this roster pool, who's, who's the most valuable person on the roster? It's Seth Rollins. It's not Ambrose. It's not Roman Reigns. It's Seth. Period. And whether that's in the way he wrestles, whether that's in the fact that, like, wrestling is his life, whether that's in anything. And, I mean, has he had scandals? Yeah, he had the nude photo come out. But, you know, you know, but John Cena has had scandals, too. John Cena's got a divorce, you know? Like, yeah, Seth Rollins had a whole thing break out when his fiance left him and nude photos got out. That's fine. John Cena got a divorce. It's fine. Like, we can move on. That's stuff that happens in people's lives. I think a divorce is much different than cheating on your future fiance. Divorce is worse. No, are you kidding? Well, why? I mean, who people knows? People get divorced all the time. It's it's yeah, but why do people a bad get, thing? Why do people get divorced most of the time? Because there's work, infidelity. No, irreconcilable differences. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Guess what? Yeah, you, you cheat. You cheat. It's like okay, you know, I fucked up. I just think that's a lot more scandalous than a divorce. Come on. 
No, no, no. Divorce is like going against, you know, your vows. There's no vows if you haven't gotten married yet. It's going against your vows. Thou shall not cheat on the neighbor's wife. I didn't make those vows. I'm but, saying, by the way. I want to get into that argument. When that girl yeah. who he was with. Yeah. When, like, her scandal broke out. Yeah. The relationship ended. I think, didn't it? After the tattoos? Yeah. I don't know. I think it did. But either way, it hasn't become a part of this at all. You know, it hasn't become a part of this at all. Why? Because Seth always puts the product first. Always. At no point has Seth Rollins' personal life, I don't think, become a distraction from Seth Rollins. Roman Reigns' personal life has. That's what a wellness policy violation is. It's when something that you do off screen affects on screen. Violating the wellness policy is something that you do for whatever reason. Who knows? But it affects on screen. You know what I mean? Seth Rollins, we talked to Mick Foley. Or I talked to Mick Foley, but it was on this podcast, so it's a we. Mick Foley said the part of having your promos scripted by the WWE means that a lot more guys can leave their work at work. Means that, like, where Mick Foley used to go home and, you know, his wife would catch him with his eyes rolled in the back of his head because he's in promo land trying to figure out what the next thing he's going to do on TV is. That doesn't happen anymore with guys because their promos are scripted. What are you going home? You know what I mean? What are you coming up with promos for if you're not going to be able to cut them? A lot of guys go home and leave wrestling behind. Seth doesn't. You know, he just doesn't. And if he does, then it's, it's, it's so far from being anything public. As far as anybody, the only thing anybody knows, nobody knows who Kobe Lopez is. Nobody has any clue. All we know is Seth Rollins because that's what he lives in front of people. And that can't be said about everybody. That can't even be said about Rusev. You know? Yeah. So uh, to me, and Rollins has the ability to, uh, to do it all. Like, Rollins is the guy. And I hope that they realize that. I think that even if the intention was to get some sympathy for Roman Reigns by having the bad guy bash him and the good guy be like, it's okay, I don't think it'll work. Because I think most of the fans would be like, yeah, that does suck that he got, sus- that he made- that he got suspended. Yeah, that is-, that is embarrassing. You know what I mean? I think you could have that, the argument they're giving Rollins, though, for, for quite a few others. Who? Example. Yeah. AJ Styles, but now we've knocked him out because he's 39. That's done. Okay. So, I mean, but. But that's done. He's 39. You, you just knocked out the scandal because you just, there's different ways you could have this argument. But I don't care. I mean, there's you no. You put that in the, the con column. So, okay, AJ is one, his one con. That he's 39? Yeah. I mean, you can't put, he's not going to be able to wrestle for 10 years. You can't put the company on his back. He could be a star, but he can't be, he can be the guy for three years. Which is great. And I love AJ. You know that. I think AJ's awesome. But he's not the future of anything. He's the present. He's not, he's not washed up. Don't get me wrong. But he's the present. He doesn't have the ability to be the future because he was the future when he was in TNA. Which is right now. Now is the future for AJ. You see what I'm saying? I, I, I buy into it. Right. Right. That's right. Like Seth Rollins. You don't sell out. You buy in. That's right. Yeah. Come on, there's got to be a few others you, though, saw, that you could put as a potential candidate. You saw. After already, he lost earlier in the night at WrestleMania 31. 
when we were in Silicon Valley. Yeah. You have you ever heard a reaction at a live show that you were at like the reaction when Seth Rollins' music hit at that WrestleMania? That was one of the greatest oh moments I've ever. God. And then he leaves with the title held up, and he's a heel, I guess. Okay, so be it. That's fine. Stone Cold was a heel too, but Rollins is. I I can't think of anybody that has everything checklisted off to be able to be even somewhat on the level of a John Cena. John Cena is so far above and beyond everything. This is a guy who learned Mandarin. He spent hours and weeks and days and years, and however long it takes to learn Mandarin, he learned Mandarin so that he could go up at a press conference and speak it for two minutes to represent the company. He learned it. And you go, what? Like, that is so far like, no, this company is my life. I'll learn Mandarin for it. Mandarin! Not, he's also hosting the ESPYs. He's hosting the ESPYs, right? And you need a guy who has the ability in 10 years from now to be in movies. You need a guy who for the next 10 years can completely live, breathe, eat, sleep, die WWE. You think he has the look? Rollins, absolutely. All right. And I think Rollins can Rollins – can, Rollins can, in 10 years from now, host the ESPYs. Rollins can pop up in movies 10 years from now. He could clean himself up a little bit, but that's all it is. Here's the, here's the thing about Rollins. When you look at Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, Finn Balor, Nakamura, uh, uh, AJ Styles, a lot of guys, you know that there are WWE guys, even Dean Ambrose, to an extent, there are WWE guys and there are indie guys. And we live in a time where indie guys are in WWE, but you know that you know who the indie guys are. You you know Kevin Owens is an indie guy. You know Sami Zayn is an indie guy. Indie guy, worldwide guys, guys that have had careers outside of WWE. You know that's AJ Styles. You know the Good Brothers. Good Brothers, that's a good one. Are indie guys. And I say indie guys to simplify, but I include Japan, international, the whole deal. Outside of WWE is why I say this. Seth Rollins does not give off that vibe. When you watch Seth Rollins, when you look at Seth Rollins, when you think of Seth Rollins, you think of him as a WWE guy. He was Ring of Honor world champion. But that is a lifetime ago because he's completely acclimated himself into WWE. I mean, am I wrong about that? No, that's an accurate You look at Seth Rollins as a WWE guy. It's even weird to think of him as Ring of Honor champion. That's what I think too. But that to me just goes to him living, breathing, eating, sleeping this thing. Like, you know, even down to the interviews. There are some guys that like... And I don't really deal with them, but you, you know that there are guys that don't want to do interviews, don't want to talk about wrestling or whatever. First time I interviewed Seth Rollins, I was just talking to him about, like, inside wrestling stuff. And the interview's on YouTube. Um, but he left that interview, and he's like, oh, man, that was great, just to chat about wrestling. Like, he's just a guy who likes wrestling. He grew up watching wrestling. This is all he's wanted to do. And that means something. Like, that is a thing. That's why, like, when you see a photo of John Cena as a kid holding up his cardboard championship belt, that's one of the reasons 
why he's where he is. And yeah, he went off and body was bodybuilder for a while. He wasn't, you know, but the point is that's something that's ingrained in some people. And Seth Rollins, I think, is the guy. And I don't think that there's going to be any way of fighting that. I think that they could try, but you can't, you can't fake that. Like if, if it is what it is, it is what it is. I don't think that that's going anywhere. I think the two biggest factors with him, subjectively speaking, tell me work ethic and Mike skills in a positive. You mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And those are huge. Those are big. And more and more, there are guys on the Indies who are coming up now who have grown up loving wrestling and watching wrestling. There are so many guys that can't cut a promo but can work a great match. Right. And that's not enough in 2016. You can't just be – not in WWE anyway. You can make a great living doing it. If that's what you want to do, then that's fine. And I love a great match, and that's, that's totally cool. But if you want to go to WWE and you want to be the headliner at WrestleMania, you can't just be a good wrestler. You have to have both those things that you just said. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe – Maybe I still think it's maybe they will not do what I think is best when Roman comes back. Maybe they will still try to push him as the future face of the company. But it's not going to work even more when he comes back than it did before he left. It's going to continue to not work. It's going to work less. Because Roman has a huge part in the company. And Roman has the ability to be, you know, a major, major player. But he's not being Roman if he's being the face of the company. And he needs to come back and be Roman and not worry about, you know, doing all the other face of the company stuff. Just be Roman. Because the future of the company is Seth Rollins. And that's not to take anything away from anybody. But that's, I think... If I'm running a wrestling promotion, if I'm in charge of WWE, whatever it is, and I want one guy, it's Seth Rollins. He's the guy. I think. And maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, you can tell me on Twitter or if I'm forgetting something, whatever. But I just I, – I don't think there's another guy that has that has what he has, all told. There are other guys that have some of the things that he has, but not everything. Not everything. And I think he even fits like his body type fits what is relevant now. You know, the days of cartoonish giant wrestler man is over. But go back to that point you made that was so interesting about Vince liking big guys. I think this is more in the Daniel Bryan category with his body type and his work ethic. I think a Cena or Reigns, that is big. That is larger than life on a billboard. I think Rollins is – I think I think it's an interesting – but ha, they, I think they have to accept that that is what is today. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it fits the image in, in decades past at all. No, I don't think so either. Um, but I also think that with – You want Brock Lesnar on a billboard. Yeah. You I want mean, Roman Reigns on a billboard. Cena. Big-ass dudes. But Cena and Brock Lesnar are more than just big-ass dudes. And they also have big character. Cena and Brock Lesnar are people that are able to do the second part of that, which that's not what Roman does. That's not who Roman is. 
Because if they put Roman on a billboard, he'd be smiling. And you go, what? You know what I mean? Well, they, he has been on billboards, not smiling. He, he, let's agree on the fact that his mic work sucks. Well, his mic work sucks when he's, when he's being this other guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't even, I've barely seen him be Roman Reigns. I've seen him a couple times. And when a couple times I've seen him be Roman Reigns, I'm like, yeah, that's the f- man. Right. I we love that dude. Agree. But we just don't see it. Um, speaking of Brock Lesnar, he's the cover of 2K17 this year. The video game. Which is 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 a big. I'm interested to see what they're going to do with this video game. Um, in terms of like what, so Goldberg is the is the downloadable character. Brock Lesnar is the cover guy. What do you think of that? What do you last year's cover guy? I think was The Rock, if I'm not mistaken. I think that was 2K16. Um, it. I understand. So WWE is obviously moving in a direction of entering the mainstream their guys can now enter the mainstream in a different way meaning the rock is still technically a wwe superstar even though he only wrestles once or twice a year and is in mainstream movies the other part of the time and that's because that way they have a wwe superstar in mainstream movies brock lesnar the same way he only wrestles a handful of times a year stone cold sorry to interrupt oh that's and then the rock before that but this is the third year in a row where you don't have an active, and then I think it was John Cena, then The Rock, then Stone Cold, then Brock Lesnar. And while I understand the logic behind it, I also think that it's a mentality that doesn't allow anybody else to break through a glass ceiling. It doesn't allow that. That is 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 taking away from creating a star because now. John Cena, in the last, John Cena, Stone Cold, Rock, Stone Cold, Brock Lesnar, in the last four years, John Cena is the most recent debut. All the other three of them have have been part of a w, the WWE for, you know, 10, well, Brock Lesnar, what, 13 years, something like that? Like, there's nobody that's come around recently and all have careers outside of WWE as well, which I understand in marketing. That's where I'm going with this business. But it's business for the video game. It's not necessarily good long term business for WWE. Because. But if it's selling games, why why change the. Because WWE is contingent as a, as a brand. Is contingent on building new stars. And if you don't build new stars, it's not going to matter who you put on the video game cover in a, in three, four, or five years. Like you can't keep selling Stone Cold and John Cena video games. If I think Lesnar's an interesting choice, though, especially just with this UFC hook. Yeah, I think it crosses over to that same audience is going to buy the video game regardless. Because because it, it becomes a fighting game. Yeah, yeah. I think there's something to be said for that choice. Yeah, yeah. And Brock Lesnar is is at least somewhat of an active competitor on the roster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was surprised by it, though. Because I, I would have—I honestly, I, I assumed they were just going to put John Cena on the cover again. I was glad they didn't put Goldberg. Who would you want on the cover? I mean, do I need Seth to— Seth Rollins. 
Why don't you send him an edible arrangement? <laughs> Maybe you guys should switch digits. <laughs> I don't know. There's lots of people you could choose. Enzo. <laughs> um, I thought it was a little clickbaity, not to be tangential, but the Lesnar drug testing headlines. He's actually been drug tested, what, five times leading up to UFC 200 because he, right, because he, it's clickbait. So he's got, yeah, he's gotten drug tested by WWE a whole bunch of times, so he's not getting drug tested by UFC. Well, because apparently you're supposed to go through, you're required to go through four months of drug testing by the United States Anti-Doping Agency for UFC right. fight. But he didn't, he was under different circumstances, obviously. Yeah. So, and I mean, WWE drug tests. ramping up fast. Yeah. But I, that's on the UFC side. Right. It's interesting. Right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And I wonder, uh, we were talking a little bit with Josh Gross about that, how it's going to affect... He even he said Josh Gross, uh, who wrote, you know, Ali Anoki, is kind of an MMA expert. And even he said it's a big gamble as to whether or not Brock is going to be at SummerSlam if Mark Hunt's the guy he's, he's fighting. Big gamble. Did I not say this? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it matters that much whether Brock's at SummerSlam or not. I don't think the point of him being at UFC is to get people to buy SummerSlam. I think the point of him being at UFC is it makes him a bigger star. So whatever show he's at next. Even if it is the September Survivor Series or whatever it is. I guess it would probably be Survivor Series if the other pay-per-views are going brand exclusive. Mm. Which is interesting. And by the way, so let's talk about this because we brought it up. Um, oh, this, you know what bothered me last night? Yeah, do tell. <laughs> about the Kane Miz thing? Yeah. I was happy to see the Miz back. You know I'm a Miz fit. Maybe the Miz should be on WWE 2K, WWE 2K17. But... um. What bothered me was all of a sudden, champions have to defend their titles every 30 days? Since when? I think that was a made-up clause. <laughs> well, it was the rule forever. That was Jack Tunney's rule. That was like 802-5B. That was Jack Tunney's rule. That was Gorilla Monsoon's rule. When we were growing up, that was the rule. The champion had to defend their title every 30 days. They would make heel champions defend their titles that way. That was definitely... The rule. But they stopped using the rule when they put the title on The Rock. Because they put the title on him at Royal Rumble, and then he didn't show up again until WrestleMania. 60 days. Then, they put the title on Brock Lesnar. And he would go 90, 100 days without defending it. This is true. Now we're going back to the 30-day rule? We should take down those trophies. Yes. You know, when they when there was, like, doping stuff going on, <laughs> right. all those names get erased from the books. Look, all I'm asking is that we put an asterisk by Brock Lesnar's name. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair, right? Yep. We need asterisks by The Rock and by Brock Lesnar. But, yeah, now we're doing the 30 days again? Poor Miz. Yeah. That's what I would have said. That's going to really jack up his acting schedule. If I were The Miz, I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's talk about this. A precedent. Precedent. Has been set. I need to be a wrestler lawyer. You do? Oh, I yeah. would go and I'd be the next Clarence Mason. I would represent everybody. Do you think if Clarence Mason were representing The Miz, he would let that slide? No. I mean, yes, he would let what? No, he would let it fly. Fly. No, he would not let it fly. Absolutely not. Clarence Mason made sure his clients were treated fairly. Very passionate about this, Sam. That's right. Well, it didn't seem fair. They did away with that rule because of the rocket. More treatment for the guys that are not full-time roster members. They don't have to defend their titles. Must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Clarence Mason, who 
was the manager of Owen Hart. Shout out to Natalia last night for saying enough is enough and it's time for a change. Best line ever. How great was that? Enough is enough and it's time for a change. Let's, uh, oh yeah, let's, uh, a little bit of house show news real quick. Yes. So, uh, first of all, if I have to read another headline about Finn Balor debuting, (laughs) this ass that is Finn Balor (laughs) decided to tweet out, because Raw's in Tampa, Florida, where everyone in NXT lives. Anyone can go to Raw when it's in Florida. He tweeted out a photo of the Raw set before they went on air. And everybody, whoa, will tonight be the night? No! He's not going to tweet before he debuts. He's messing with you. But it was interesting because they did an Orlando house show. It was a WWE-branded house show. And they did a tag match. They did Austin Aries and Samoa Joe versus Finn Balor and Nakamura at the WWE house show. Uh, It's worth noting. I don't think it means anything... Uh, sufficient. I think that all four of those guys are possibilities when the draft comes up on the 19th. Uh, but I do think that there might have that might have been while they're in Orlando because they're there anyway and it's cheap. Um, maybe a little test to see how the house show audience reacted. And I'm sure they reacted very well. But I found that interesting. And you know what else was interesting? Mm-hmm. Over the weekend, Dean Ambrose, he pulled Hulk Hogan duty. He wrestled two house shows on one night. <laughs> he defended that's what Hogan used to do back in the day. He used to have to wrestle the matinee match. He used to wrestle before intermission and then he'd leave that house show and go to the next one so that Hogan could headline both house shows. Are you serious? That's, yeah. that's amazing news. Yeah, that's what yeah, Hogan used to have to do that because Hogan was had the company on his back. Ambrose did that this weekend. He defended the title against uh definitely Seth and maybe AJ, I don't remember who the other one was, but he went, you know, because they split the roster and he went because it was right after Roman had been suspended. So he went and he did both the shows. It's not going to happen anymore with the uh, draft, but I just thought that was really interesting. That's Speaking of work ethic. Yeah. Not bad, huh? They better Plus, have given him a Lex Express for that. Well, I'll tell you, they gave him a couple paydays. That's not bad. That's not That's bad. That's not bad news. Um, I don't know if you noticed the minutia of Raw, but Ambrose comes out. WWE champion, not WWE world heavyweight champion. You see, back when there were two titles, there was the world title, there was the WWE title. They combined them, it became the WWE world heavyweight championship. So essentially. As of Monday, it was just the WWE championship, which goes right back to my theory. Two titles. Slitsky. Yep. And by the way, Dean Ambrose, I believe, will take that title to SmackDown. I believe Dean Ambrose will be the WWE champion on SmackDown. And Raw will have a new world title. That's what I think is going to happen. Um, but but I, 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 I think that that was part of it. So we can talk a little bit about... Um, some of the guys that may be coming, they're still talking about possibly guys coming back for the draft. I don't know for sure if I believe it. Um, there's rumors that Cody Rhodes was get, is going to be offered another deal. What? Because they want him back, which would be cool. I mean, you remember, it's it, not the craziest thing. Daniel Bryan, when he got his deal after he was fired, 
he had to finish up his indie dates. So at the same time as being on WWE TV, he was also doing indie shows because they let him finish up his book dates, which means if Cody Rhodes returns to WWE TV, he could be like, you know, on SmackDown one night and on Pat Buck's show the next night. So that's always fun. And I'd like to see it. I just don't, I don't know if he'll be back quite this soon. Um, Roderick Strong ended with Ring of Honor this week. At the pay-per-view. Yes. Watch that. How was it? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I heard the uh, the last match was really good. It was insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, uh, honestly, you know who needs Roderick Strong? TNA. Those are the guys that TNA need to be looking at. Like, everybody's like, oh, you know, t- NXT, the perfect place for Roderick Strong. TNA, now that NXT... They don't have any money. I guess not. It's like, what's that thing that eats the hamburgers on Popeye's? Like, I'll pay you. (laughs) I'd gladly pay you (laughs) for two ham... I'd gladly pay for a hamburger tomorrow. (laughs) I'll give you two Jay Lethals. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they need to get rid of some of the older guys. They need to get rid of the Hardys is who they need. I mean, and I love... I know. Brother Nero. He seems expensive. He's freaking worth it. <laughs> That's true. Don't disagree with that. You know that. what? I can't disagree with that because what did I say a few weeks ago? Yeah, you're negating he's bring, yourself. He's bringing the weirdness. Don't get rid of the Hardys then. But you got to be able to, to, to figure out some money because what NXT is cementing themselves as a brand now. They're, that's I think that's what the end, take over the end, was all about. NXT is now officially considered a third brand. Raw, SmackDown, NXT. TNA needs to at least, it, I, of course they're not going to compete with WWE, Raw, SmackDown, whatever. They need to compete with, with NXT. If they can't compete with NXT, then it's like, come on, guys. And I know there's budgetary issues and everything, but TNA needs to hire some of these. T- they did the right thing with Mike Bennett, but you now need to build a roster. Here's a, Mike Bennett is a great signing. Trevor Lee. Is a fabulous signing. There's a few guys, but it's only a handful of them. I think Pepper Parks is going to be good, but there's only a handful of great signings that they've made anytime recently. And those are the guys that they need. They need guys that have a cool factor. And a cool factor is not, I wrestled for WWE a while ago. Or a very, very mysterious factor. Right, which would be Brother Nero. And Bigfoot. And Bigfoot. Don't right. forget about that. No, you're right. They made a good move with that. Um, but I think they need to be grabbing. They they should be trying to raid. If I were TNA, I'd be trying to raid Ring of Honor. I'd be. I'd. Are you? I'd be. Can you imagine a TNA with Adam Cole on top? That's what TNA needs. They need a Roderick Strong. They need Adam Cole on top of their company. They need all this stuff. They had the Young Bucks. It didn't work. They blew it. But there's too much confusion. They're trying too much to be like, you know, TV wrestling, trying too much to be like WWE, when what they need to do is hire a bunch of these internet darlings, hire a bunch of these buzzy guys, and turn them into TV stars. I mean, WWE is getting everyone. They just filmed the first round of the Cruiserweight tournament but last Sam, week. Sam, they don't have any money. <laughs> well, That's I don't a know. a big problem. I, don't be a company if you don't have any money. What do you want me to tell you? Like, you have to make money. That's first rule. Do something where you make money. Second rule, use the money to hire amazing talent so you make more money. Is, am I speaking of, of foreign logic here? Dothraki. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, WWE is doing the WWE 
uh, did the first round of the Cruiserweight tournament, and I didn't read any of the spoilers or anything. But I'm so anxious to see. I think uh, July 13th is when it actually airs. But they've already filmed the entire first round. Um, and I'm super psyched about it. I think it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be really, really good. Really, really good stuff. All right. Do we? I, the only thing that we really missed was, uh, I don't know what Charles Robinson is still doing, refereeing big matches. He doesn't deserve our airtime. <laughs> you don't think so? No, Chuck, Chuck's just... <laughs> he ruined Natty's chances. He turned her into a bad guy. He's ruined a lot of people's chances, Sam. And he's still got that spot. Yep. Must be nice. Mm-hmm. Must be nice. Do we hit everything? I see a little. I see those little checks. I got, I got some notes in here. The Adam Cole contest we did not get to. I don't know who the winner is, though, so oh, we'll have shit. to do it next week. Oh, my gosh. I don't. Let me just say I'm disappointed with the amount of responses we had in this. <laughs> when have we done a contest that's just kind of, that went over like a lead balloon? Were you, because you made, we, we made it too complicated. We were talking about Photoshopping stuff and do it instead of just a hashtag. It's a hashtag. People well, that's will, your fault. You were the one that was supposed to tell what the contest was. Well, I don't do contests. <laughs> that's why I don't do contests. Whatever. I just do a show. The contest's over. We had two entrants. They both win. I believe three. I we, saw we have th- three? I oh, saw a now, third one. now I'm going to have to give us like a, a sympathy. Like everyone wins a trophy prize because you can't just leave one person out. Yeah, you can. No, it's not a roll like that. Well, then you, uh, you get. The other reason I don't do contests is because I always forget to send prizes. I am the one that has to do all that in yeah, my well. spare time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm super busy, so. <laughs> You have that kind of time. Yeah, right. Uh, you can hear all about the time, kind of time that Katie has when you download uh, her podcast. It's a Tech Lifestyles podcast, and you can get it at www.katie.show. You can also uh, search iTunes and search for the words katie.show. This last podcast, Katie and I tried to escape the room with Ford Escape. That's true. And uh, that was a very, very fun podcast, so you would be able to hear all about that. Uh, and you can get everything else at katielindendahl.com. Thank you so much for being here, Katie. Thanks so much. You can also catch me on the Today Show and the Weather Channel coming up as usual. Oh, boy. This yeah, is going to be exciting. you got to follow her on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, Katie Linendahl to find out all about that. See you next week. Goodbye. Hero Ow. Scary. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And subscribe for free to listen every week to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire.
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.